Psalm 119, 105, we read, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Let's pray together. God, we come to you in this moment to hear from your word, and we pray that, God, you would open our eyes to see and our minds to understand, and may you light your path, or light our path with your word. Oh, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'd ask you to turn this morning to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, as we continue to work through the gospel of Matthew and continue to track through chapter 18, as you, as you turn there, I, I would just share with you, growing up, my, my father was an engineer by day and a, a small farmer by night. We had a, a bunch of cattle that, that he would take care of. We had a, a small, small farm, and then across the street from where we lived, there was just nothing but fields and pastures, and we leased out those fields and ran cattle on it. And, and so I, I, I learned in that time the the devotion and the care and the sacrifice of a farmer, of someone who has cattle to care for, who has livestock under, under his care. And I remember numerous occasions when plans just changed just like that, you know, sitting down to eat and all of a sudden dinner was interrupted because a, a, a cow was having a calf and is breached or a problem going on or we get a call in the middle of the night or before we're about to leave to go somewhere and there's cattle out or whatever it might be. I remember dad chasing off wild dogs and protecting the, the, the cows, which I always thought that was an adventure. That was fun for me. I don't think it was fun for him. But, uh, but there was a lot of things that we did uh, to take care of them. And, and I, I think the thing that I remember most frequently causing kind of interruptions for us was those moments in which the, the cattle went astray. And, and they did that for various reasons. Sometimes it was because a storm came or a tree fell and, and knocked the fence down and, and cows got out and someone would call and say, hey, we think your cattle are out. And so we went out and I learned to walk like this, you know, to make yourself bigger. Arthur knows exactly what I'm saying here. You know, you walk like that and, and push them all back and get them back in. Other times, uh, something we, we had this one bull that was just massive. He was huge, and we sold him. We, we couldn't put him in the head gate because he was just such a huge, big bull. But he was super tame, and uh, he just decided he wanted grass up the street. And so he just walked through the fence and uh, went and was eating grass. And so the neighbor called and said, hey, George is out. And so me and Dad went up there with a piece of rope, and Dad put the rope around George's neck, and we walked George back down the road to our field like he was a big oversized dog. And so there were just different things that happened, right, farming, that led you to, to have to care for and, and go get the cattle when they went astray. Well, in our text today, we look at Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14, our text here describes God as a shepherd, and it describes the care that he shows as he watches over and pursues those who are his. And so he uses a parable here that we'll read that you probably will recognize. But let's read the, the word of God this morning in Matthew 18, beginning verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? 
And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And we, we've looked at Matthew 18, and if you're visiting with us this morning and haven't been with us in the study, Matthew 18 is the fourth out of five major discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And particularly what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 18 is what it looks like for us to live together as the people of God in the Messianic community, the Messianic kingdom. What does it look like to live and to function and to just to live life together as God's people? And so he, he hashes this out and he's continuing to explain this and, and work it out. And, and we need to know, especially when we come to this text, that there's an important contextual reminder that we need to understand. We look at this passage and we understand what exactly Jesus is teaching. That reminder is that Jesus is addressing in this passage believers. He's addressing believers. I would just point you back to uh, verse 3, when he begins the passage and he uses children as an illustration of humble belief that characterizes true believers. And then this continues to be the theme when he goes out through verse 5, verse 6, and verse 10. He's making reference again to believers. He calls them uh, one such child in verse 5, the little ones of verse 6. And then again in verse 10 today, little ones. Every time he's saying that in this passage, he's referring to believers the child is an example of the believer. Now, we, I mentioned last week, when we get over into chapter 19, he's going to address children specifically and how that relates. But right here, when he's saying little ones, again, he's thinking about and he's talking to us about the believer, the true child of God. And so that's what we need to understand. Contextually, that's important. We'll, we'll look at why that's important a little more in just a moment. Now, verse 10 here begins with a warning from the Lord. If you look at verse 10 there, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. See that you do not despise one of my children, one of my people, right? In verse 18, or in chapter 18, it's becoming more and more apparent how much God cares for his people. And we'll continue to see that as we work our way through chapter 18 and into 19, this discourse, we, we grow a better understanding and appreciation of God's deep persistent, pursuing, relentless care and love for his people. He, he, he cares so much for his people that if you look back in verse 5 of chapter 18, that he identifies closely with us. We talked about union with Christ there, and we talked about how Christ identifies so closely with his people that to welcome a believer is to welcome Christ himself right? In verse 6, we talked about how uh, he explains how serious and dangerous it is for us to lead a believer into sin. It's a, a great warning. We talked about a warning for us as the body of Christ not to lead others into sin, not to bring temptation upon them, even for those outside the body of Christ that might think that's a game or funny to lead a believer to struggle or to fall into sin. We talked about that as a dangerous place to be and a clear warning from the Lord there. He goes on in verses 7 and 9. He talks about how if, those, if, if we are bringing temptation upon others, that that is sin in our lives, and we need to take drastic measures, radical, decisive action to kill the sin within us that is leading to tempt others. And so here, verses 10 through 14, he continues to talk about the great care that he has for his people. In verses 10 to 14, he's expressing the, the deep care that leads God to relentlessly pursue his people when we go 
astray. He loves his little ones. He loves his people. And we must be careful then not to despise other believers, not to despise those who are his. That's the warning. Do not see to it. He says, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. To despise would just be to, to look down on, on someone else, to, to think poorly of them, to show contempt towards them. Literally, if you just did a really, really literal translation of the word there, it's to think against, to, to think in opposition to, to think against another person. Now, how might we do this? Well, some examples, maybe just thinking ill of them, ho- hoping that harm would come upon them, that, that they would not be successful, that they would not experience the blessing of the Lord. We hope they fail at something, thinking and hoping for that failure to come upon them. That would be to despise, to think against them. Or perhaps looking upon one who is backslidden with, with great pride and contempt that oh, I, that would never happen to me. I can't believe them. I can't believe they would do that. How awful is thinking against them. Perhaps it's, it's thinking well of someone just based on his or her intellect or his or her spiritual maturity or what he or she can do for us. Instead of just saying they are a child of God and I love them and I care about them and I think highly of them because the Lord has adopted them and loves them, gave his life for them, and he thinks highly of them. Maybe it's just thinking less of someone because he or she struggles with sin. They're in battle with something. They're, 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 they're weak in an area that maybe you're not weak or I'm not weak. And so we despise them and think against them. Jesus says, see to it that that does not happen. See to it that you do not despise them. See to it that you do not look with contempt on one in that situation. We are to to value, we're to receive, we're to welcome all of God's people because he has welcomed them, he values them. They're his. We don't welcome and receive and value God's people because of what they can do for us or they make us feel comfortable or we get along with them or or whatever it is. We welcome them, receive them, value them because they are God's sheep. They are God's people. And so the remainder of the passage here talks about God's love and care then for his people. So he warns us, don't despise these little ones of mine. Don't despise them. Don't think poorly of them, but think highly of them. And then he talks about what it is that they're kind of characterized and describes his value and care for his sheep, for his people. The first thing we see here is, is in, in the tail end of, of verse 10. He says, For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So we see here that, that the host of heaven is working on behalf of believers. That God mobilizes and, and has given his angels the task of caring for, for protecting his people. And the reason that we should not look on contempt on other or look with contempt on other believers is that God looks upon his children with great love and great care, and so much so that angelic hosts work on behalf of his people. Now, a question comes up with this verse. Some of you may have read it and went, ooh, that's I've got a question there. And the question is this is is Jesus teaching in verse 10 the idea that we all have guardian angels? It's a fair question. It's a good question to ask. Because he says there, he says, um, I tell you in heaven, their angels 
always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So does that mean that we each have an angel designated to us as a guardian angel? I think there's a couple of things we can say and then look at all of Scripture, the whole of Scripture, and kind of the testimony of what it teaches about angels, their work, their task. First thing we need to note is that the, the verse itself, and this is pretty obvious, right? The verse itself does not make reference to guardian angels, right? That's a, a word that we have kind of brought into and we think and frame and describe it. So it doesn't explicitly say here that each person has a guardian angel, right? It doesn't say that here. It does say they're angels, right? However, it does indeed, on the kind of flip side, tell us that angels are involved in caring for the lives of God's people. So angels are indeed involved in our lives. And so the question is, what does it mean? Where do we, where do we land? Well, again, when we're interpreting Scripture, we need to look at the context that we're in, right? We need to understand the immediate context of right here in this passage. We need to understand the context of the Gospel of Matthew, and then the context of Scripture as a whole. We allow Scripture to interpret and to understand and help us to understand difficult passages when we come to them and answer questions we have. And so we look at the whole of Scripture, we come and say, what, is, what does Scripture itself teach about angels? We just go and look throughout the testimony of Scripture. Now here's a few passages that I believe are important to answering this question. The first one is Psalm 34, 7, where we read, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. So the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So we see there a testimony that the angels of the Lord are working to protect and, and guard and deliver God's people. In Psalm 91, 11, we read, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So again, we see testimony here that angels are tasked to guard the people of God. They are active in our lives. In, in Luke 15, 10, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that you'll, you'll probably remember that passage time and time again. He talks about that, the, the rejoicing in heaven. So we see there that, that angels, that they're not only just tasked with, with guarding and protecting and delivering and working to carry out God's will among believers, but, but they find great joy in us repenting and coming to the Lord they find great joy in, in our relationship with God. The status of it, where is it at? In, in Acts 12, 6 to 11, you might remember the passage where Peter is thrown in prison and an angel comes and frees him from prison. Do you remember that? He frees him and Peter leaves. That's when, when he goes and he knocks on the door and, and uh, the, the, the young girl, I can't remember her name right now, uh, she comes and, and is like, Here's, oh wait, hey, Peter's at the door, and they're like, that can't be Peter, it's got to be his angel, right? And so that's another reference where it says his angel, that feel, okay, does that mean we have a guardian angel? And again, there's some people say, scholars that look at that, and they'll go, well, his angel is referring to more what we'd understand, maybe his ghost, or we don't know, or it's designated, but it doesn't, again, explicitly say we have guardian angels. Um, when you get to Revelation 120, here, here's an interesting thing to the conversation. In, in 120, we see that the seven churches are described as each having an angel. So according to Revelation 120, we look at that, it does seem that churches have angels responsible for them, over them, because the angel of this church is referred to. Again, I don't know exactly what that means, what it looks like. I think maybe one of the most important passages for us to think about in this is in Hebrews, though. In Hebrews 1.14, where we read this, that, and it kind of puts a, a packet, it kind of 
puts a bow on the package, so to speak. Maybe it just kind of brings it all together. The writer of Hebrews says, when he's talking about angels, he's talking about the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is exalted high above the angels. And so he's talking about angels, and he says this about them. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So again, we, we would understand and see clearly here that God sends out his angels to work on behalf of his people. That they would go out to minister to, to, to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So all that to say that what we see in Scripture is that angels do work to protect and carry out God's will in the lives of believers. But to come down and really really harsh thing, a hard thing, and say, hey, we all have a guardian angel, the support of Scripture isn't clear for us to say we all have an individual guardian angel. I think maybe probably the easiest way to understand it, I heard it described in this way, and this makes sense to me, is that when it comes to angels and their work in protecting and ministering, serving God's people, they play a zone defense more than they do a man-to-man. It just kind of makes sense, right? And so there are tasks, you guys who are, are sports fans, you know that in zone defense, if somebody comes and they come into your region, or region, it's like a big zone, I guess, uh, but if they come into your, your area, you're going to pick them up, right? You're not going to just let them go by and go, oh, oh, no big deal, right? You pick them up. You stay with them in your zone. And so it's more of a zone defense than man-to-man defense, perhaps. The incredible thing here to me is a statement that when he talks about the angels, their angels, those who are caring for us, they, they minister and serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. He makes a statement here. He says that they always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The, to, to see the face of God means to be in the presence of God. And it simply means that they have direct, constant communication with the Lord. They know what's going on. They hear from him. He instructs them. He guides them. They come and report evidently perhaps i don't know but they have constant communication the bottom line is this is that the testimony of scripture is that god employs the heavenly host for the sake of his people that they serve those who shall inherit salvation hebrews says that they deliver they encamp around they protect they guard they rejoice they rejoice over God's work in our lives. That's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So the second thing, we see that if the host of heaven are before the Lord, right, on our behalf, the second thing he talks about in verses 12 to 13 is the shepherd's pursuit of straying sheep. The pursuit of straying sheep. Now, I guess I need to back up, right? Some of you guys are going, wait a minute, you forgot verse 11. Um, and maybe my Bible did too. No, your, your Bible should go verse 10 and verse 12, and it should have a footnote at the bottom that tells you that in the earliest, earliest manuscripts, verse 11 is not there, that a, a later uh, edition is most likely that it moved over from a passage in Luke to tie them together. And so that's why verse 11 is not in your text. Again, it points to, as I've told you time and time again, when something like that happens, it points to the integrity and the trustworthiness, the veracity of Scripture, because there's nothing to hide right? They're looking at the, the, the earliest manuscripts to put before us the best text available, but also to make note that here is something that we need to know and be aware of. All right, so in verse 12 and 13, 
What we see when we think about God's care for his people is we see the shepherd's pursuit of straying sheep. Now, this is a well-known parable, isn't it? You, you heard this, and it's a well-known parable, right? That the, the shepherd who leaves the 99, right, to go after the one. Now, Jesus uses this parable to teach two times. He does it here in Matthew 18, and then he uses it again in Matthew 15, 1 to 7. It's kind of like some of you have, have an example in your life or something that happened, and you know that there's been times where you've been, you've been teaching, and you, you use that example to teach. You know, maybe, maybe me, and, me and Derek are talking, and we're talking about uh, raising children, and, and he's like, I don't know. And, what you? and I go, hey, let me tell you. And I tell him this example and about how something I learned there and how it teaches, da, 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 da. And he's oh, yeah, that's helpful. Well, then the, the next week, me and Josh are, are talking, and as we talk, Josh is, is sharing, man, I just can't figure out out this stuff with the, the guys at work and I'm over and what to do and I said well, hey listen let me tell you this story and here's something I want to tell you da, 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 and I tell him and he goes oh yeah yeah that's helpful and, and we apply it in different ways we use the same illustration or story and we speak and use it to teach a principle in perhaps different contexts that's what Jesus does in Luke 18 and Luke 15 I don't, you don't have to flip over to Luke 15, but if you want to, you can. We're not going to stay there long or anything. But in Luke 15, verses 1 through 7, Jesus is, is talking to the tax collectors, I mean, talking to the Pharisees and scribes. And the Pharisees and scribes, you may remember, they come to him and their kind of complaint, their question is, why in the world are you spending so much time with tax collectors and sinners? What's the deal? And Jesus' answer is using this parable, the, the sheep or the shepherd that leaves the 91, or not 91, the 99 to go get the one, right? He uses that parable to teach of God's care for the lost. This is why I eat with sinners and tax collectors, because God cares for the sinner. He cares for the lost, and he pursues the lost, that they might be saved, so that parable in Luke 15, Jesus is te teaching it in the context of unbelievers and the lost. That the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes to get the one who is lost. It is the loving, gracious pursuit of God the good shepherd for those who are lost. But here in Matthew 18, remember context is important. In Matthew 18, who is he talking to? He's talking to believers. Right? And so it, here, the context is different. Jesus is speaking about believers who have gone astray or who have backslidden. And he's talking about God's loving pursuit of his people who have been led astray, who have gone astray. That he would leave the 99 to go get the one who's gone astray. And so it's two different situations, and he's applying the same principles and the same parable to teach in that situation. You could, you could even make reference later on, but when you read in Matthew 18 and, and, and verse 10 to 14, again, he says little ones, little ones. Uh, he's talking about believers, but he also talks about those who have gone astray is the word. But in Luke 15, it's a completely different Greek word. It's the those who are lost. And so it's different. The lost are the ones who have just gone astray. It's different passages using the same illustration. Another way you might think of it is Luke 15 is evangelistic in nature, and Luke, or Matthew 18 is pastoral in nature. So what do we learn then here? The pastoral truth we learn is this, is that the Lord pursues us if we stray. 
The Lord pursues us. If we stray, he cares for us as a shepherd cares for his sheep. He is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. The idea of God as a shepherd is something we see frequently in Scripture, isn't it? That's why we read Psalm 23. To have that in the context in our minds that God is the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. A beautiful psalm, right? The psalm of living life under the, the gracious and merciful, sovereign care of a great and a mighty God, the great I am. Yahweh is my shepherd, right? So we understand that in Psalm 80, verse 1. God is called the shepherd of Israel. In Psalm 100, verse 3, we're described, it says, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. In Micah 5, 4, we read the uh, prophecy that the Messiah would stand and shepherd his flock. John 10, 14, Jesus calls himself, what? The good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. In 1 Peter 2, 25, Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's a shepherd, the overseer of your souls. And in Hebrews 13, 20, Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. God is the shepherd. He uses that to explain his care of us, his people. In verse 10, we're called then not to despise believers, right? Verse 12, we learn that God will pursue his people who go astray like a shepherd. Now, this is just an instance where Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. And when he says that, the Jews go, oh yeah, I get it. Heard that before. This is nothing new. Look at Jeremiah 23. If you want to turn to Jeremiah 23, it's in the Old Testament. If you don't want to turn there, I'll, I'll just read it to you. But Jeremiah 23, when, when Jesus says in Matthew 18 that if one is led astray, that the Lord will go get him, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. It's exactly what God said he would do. So in Jeremiah 23, verses 1 to 4, this is what we read. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock. You've driven them away. And you have not attended to them. Behold, this is not what you want to hear from the Lord. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then, listen to what he's going to do. Then, I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold. And they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, let's back up on verse 4. What did he say? Neither, I'm shooting for a pretty good ratio here. I, I'm thinking as long as I'm just missing 1%, it'll be all right. He doesn't say that. He says what? Neither shall any be missing. He will bring all his sheep that have been scattered back in. All that have been driven away. All that have been led astray who were not attended for. He will bring them back and they will be fruitful. Not any of them 
will be missing. Not any of them. Now, Ezekiel 34 is another passage. We read something similar. In Ezekiel 34, the entire chapter, God is pronouncing woe upon shepherds who do not do what they are called to do for his people. He's pronouncing woe upon them. He's pronouncing judgment against them. He actually tells Ezekiel, you go and prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Go prophesy against them. They've been feeding themselves. They've just been caring about themselves. They're not feeding the sheep. They're not caring for them. And he says, my sheep are scattered in Ezekiel 34. Now, what I want you to hear, though, is starting in verse 11, Ezekiel 34, 11. Just listen to this. You can write this down and read it later. This is Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16. There, listen to what God says. For thus says the Lord, behold, he's talking about the sheep that have been scattered, right? Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down, lie down in a good grazing land or rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, listen, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, Luke 15, 1 to 7. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, Matthew 18, 12 to 13. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God's saying exactly what he said in Matthew 18 and Luke 15. That I will seek them. I myself will be the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And I will go get those who are lost. I will go get those who have strayed. And when he does, when he does, what, is, what do we read in Matthew 18? He says, when he finds it, when he pursues that sheep that's going astray, he says, when he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. He rejoices over it. God takes great joy in bringing the sheep back. Joy that exceeds the 99. Joy that over that one, there's great rejoicing. We read of that in the one who has gone astray. We read of it in Luke 15 that the lost, when he is, is, is found, when he comes back, he's brought back in, that there is great rejoicing, not only in God, but among the angels in heaven. There's great joy and rejoicing. Listen, some of you need to hear this passage today because you are backslidden. You've Going astray. Maybe you've been led astray. Maybe you've just kind of wandered. I don't know. Maybe it was because you, you've, there's teaching that has come into your life and it sounds so appealing and it's tickled your ears and it's kind of given you that, that great feeling, but it's just led you astray. And you get to that point and you're, you're not pursuing the Lord. You're living in sin. 
Or maybe it's just like the, the cattle growing up where they don't really have any reason. I, I guess if you looked at a cow and said, why did you wander away? It was, I don't know. I just did. I was not where I was. Right? That's where some of you probably are. Why are, why are you living like you're living now? I don't, I, 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 I don't know. And you're being serious. You're being real. But regardless, you, you find yourself today and you've backslidden, you've gone astray, you've wandered into sin. You may be like the cattle growing up. You've wandered away and you're, you're in a spot where you're standing in the middle of a road and a semi-truck could take you out. You have no idea of the danger you lie within. No idea. You're just oblivious. You've backslidden. You're playing with fire you know not of. And, and you wonder... Okay, I know I'm backslidden. I know I've strayed. But if I come back, what are people going to think? What are people going to say? What would I say? What would I tell people? How will people respond? Well, I would say that if we are in step with the Lord and living with the Lord, that if you are in rebellion, if you've been led astray and you come back in, there will be great rejoicing. Because that's what God says He does. He rejoices over it. So if you're there and you're going, well, I don't know if I could come back. I'm, I'm ashamed. I feel guilty. That's fine. Come and rest in the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God that cleanses you of all unrighteousness. And let Him rejoice over you and in you and in His grace. And let us rejoice in His grace and His mercy too. We rejoice over you. I, I was there. I, we, we shared the other night our first Grace Mint cohort, kind of our testimony. I told, I told that group, I said, you know, my testimony is I, I came to Christ and I, I walked with the Lord really through middle school and high school. I just, I just straight away. I wasn't pursuing the Lord. There was conviction in my life. The Holy Spirit continued to convict me. But I straight away until a, a guy named Curtis Eccleston he liked to play basketball and he liked to hike. Like, all right, let's go. Well, God used that guy in my life playing basketball on Tuesday and Thursday nights at the gym to minister to me. And I started coming back to church. You know, when I started coming out to church, nobody looked at me and went, <laughs> what's he doing here? There was great joy. People encouraged me. People were there. They were happy. Listen, in the midst of your struggles with sin and your wanderings from God, you need to know that God cares for you deeply. His angels are working on your behalf. He is working. He himself will pursue you and bring you back. If you're truly a, a child of God, he is not going to go, well, I don't care about him or her. He's pursuing you. He will come after you. He will bring you back. You will not be lost. Now, this may be difficult for you, it may be painful for you. Remember, we, we read and we heard Psalm 23, right? His rod and his staff. If you went and asked the average sheep how comforting is a rod and a staff, they'd say, well, it depends on the day, right? It's, the, it's really comforting when I think about the wolves that are coming after me, that he's going to do some business on them with the staff or the rod. 
But when I wander and I go astray, it's not so comfortable when the crook of his staff yanks me back. It kind of hurt. Broke a rib. Didn't like it. But I'm alive. It may not be comfortable. It may not feel good. God uses it. It may be discipline in your life. He may indeed discipline you. I'll never forget in Peru, those of you who went to Peru, you're in the, the Andes Mountains. I'll never forget the first time we're driving through the, the mountains and we come by a cattle. There's all these cattle grazing like normal cattle and then there'll be like one or two grazing and they had their front and back leg tied together on one side. I was like, when you're on the Andes Mountains, there's cliffs like a thousand feet and here's a cow with two of its legs tied together. You remember this? It's like, what in the world? Are they trying to kill cattle? No. They've been wandering off. They've been getting away. So they tie two legs together. It teaches them to stay close because they can't really run that well. Makes sense. Listen, there are some of us who we need the Lord to tie us together, to discipline us. I've been leading a life where we're going astray, we're backslidden. Why is it that the words of the old hymn ring so true in our hearts. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Now what's the next line? Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Why does that resonate with us? Because if you're like me, you know that you can be quite prone to wonder. It can be very easy for your wondering heart to veer off course. And so the prayer is, God, bind my wondering heart to thee. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Now, the last thing I point out to us this morning before we get out of this text is verse 14. Verse 14 is beautiful assurance to the believer. Beautiful assurance to the believer. It's the confidence that we have. Verse 14 is the confidence we have that all true believers will be brought back into the fold. It is the Father's will, according to verse 14. What does he say? Verse 14, he says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's not his will. In, in Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see that there are indeed bad shepherds. There were bad shepherds then, there are bad shepherds today. We need to be discerning on who we allow to shepherd us. Are they men of God? Are they truly shepherding us as God would have them shepherd? How he instructs in his word. There are bad ones then, bad ones today. But God is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. That's the, the reminder of Psalm 23 that he is the good shepherd who is the Lord. He is Yahweh, God Almighty. He is the one who has the absolute ability and power to carry you, to secure you, to guard you, protect you, to not lead you just into the valley, but through the valley of the shadow of death, right? He is the good shepherd. And Jesus explains here, he says that it is not the will of my Father that one of these little ones should perish. 
Oh, God, what's your will? I can tell you one thing very clearly. You want to know what God's will is? I can tell you one thing clearly. His will is that none of his people perish, that none of them be lost. Jesus, in in John 6, 39 to 40, you know, he says, he says, and this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father, he's saying. That, what is it, Jesus? What is it? Well, it's that I should lose nothing of all he has given me. Raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's good news. That's assurance. That's confidence that we have in Christ. He says, this is the will, that I will not lose any, not one. And the same thing he said in Ezekiel 34. Or, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 23. Not one. He will not lose any. There will not be any lost. He says, the will of God. Now, just think about that for a moment. The will of God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the uncreated one, right? The uncreated one, the one who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who sustains all things. It says in Colossians that in him all things hold together. This God, this God says, it is my will that not one of my little ones should perish. Do you think he's able to accomplish that? I'm going to fall on the side of, yes, he is. I think you should too. Yes, he is absolutely able. And Jesus says, this is his will that that I should lose none of what he's given me. This is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So the question is, have you looked on Christ? Have you trusted Christ? If so, you will not be lost. You will be given eternal life. And it's not something that he goes, here's eternal life. Whoa, it's a yo-yo. Give it back. He gives eternal life that you should never perish. His will is that none of his little ones would perish. Believer, find great confidence in that today. Find great security in God's power and his grace and his will today. Unbeliever, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to the one who who has promised that everyone who looks on Christ and believes in him should have eternal life. He doesn't say that everyone who says the right things, everyone that reads the right books, everyone that goes to the the right church, everyone that, that wears the right clothes, everyone that memorizes the right verses. No. It's everyone who looks upon him, everyone who who looks on the Son and believes in him would have eternal life. It's by grace through faith that you're saved. So unbeliever, I would just call you, I would invite you, I would appeal to you, look to Christ. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at what you know. Stop looking at, at what you can do. Stop looking at your opinions or the opinions of man. Look to Christ for salvation. Trust him. Trust him. Believe in him. Now, believer, how can you be certain then? You think about this verse. Here's why this is such an encouraging verse. Have you ever thought about 
how do I know I'm going to persevere to the end? How, how, do, how do I know that? God, what if, I, what if I stumble? What if I fall? What, what happened? Have you ever had that thought? Verse 14 says, If it is true that I'm one of his sheep, <laughs> then it is the will of God Almighty. It is the will of the Father that I should not perish. This is eternal security. This is what it means for the saints to persevere. It's, it's not that I made a decision. It's not that I walked in an aisle. It's not that I came to church. It's not that I cleaned myself up. It's not that I've lived this perfect, squeaky clean little Christian life. No, assurance is in the work of God. Assurance is found in that He is able to guard what He's given me. Assurance is found in what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, that he has saved us to a living hope according to his mercy, saved us to an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, imperishable, that is kept and guarded by him. That's assurance. That he is able, he is mighty, that he holds us fast. That he holds us secure, that, that our, we as his sheep, we hear his voice. Remember what he said in John 10, 27, 30, that my sheep know me, I know them, they hear my voice, and I give them eternal life. I give it to them. No one can take it away. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one. That is security. That's the confidence that we have that God cares for his people like a sheep and he will hold us fast through every trial of life. So we sing, I could never keep my hold. He must hold me fast. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Sheep, believers, brothers, sisters, perseverance to the end is ultimately about God working out his will to save us. To bring us back in. That's what it's about. I mean, we are constantly, it's like a story of constant rebellion. As lost, we have rebelled and transgressed against him, but yet he seeks and saves the lost. He leaves the 99 to go get the one lost, Luke 15 said. And as believers, we, we're prone to wonder. We have wondering hearts. We go astray. But God goes after us. He pursues us. Matthew 18, he brings us back in. Praise God that he pursues us even when we don't pursue him. Praise the Lord for that. Otherwise, we would all be wandering and lost and helpless. But God pursued us. He sent forth his son to die for us. Not because one of us said, you know what would be really cool is if God sent his one only son to die for us. That'd be amazing. Hey, God, could you do that? That wasn't our idea. No, that was God's plan, according to Acts 2.24. That was God's plan before the very foundations of the world. <laughs> and he did it. He carried it out because he's able, he's good, he's gracious, he's awesome. Man is in rebellion. God is pursuing, and God wills that none of his sheep would perish. None, not one, not any.
you know, back to what I shared with you at the beginning, growing up, we got a lot of calls about cows, cattle that were out. Dad's first question was, do they have, I think it was a yellow tag, certain number range, I can't remember right now. And if it wasn't, Dad would say, well, that's, you know, Farmer Joe's up the road. Give him a call. They'd call him. And we would go about our evening. Now, if Joe needed help, we would go help him. That was about it. If it was one of ours, the night didn't end until that cow was back safely in the field. Supper stopped being eaten. The shows stopped being watched. Appointments were put on hold. Everything to get that cow because it was ours. So the question is, are you his? Are you a child of God? Are you a sheep of his fold? That's the first thing you've got to figure out. If you're not, look upon Christ and believe in him and you will be saved. If you are, look to Him if you've been led astray and backslidden and draw near unto Him that He would pull you in. And also, find great comfort, great comfort, that it's His will that none of His little ones should perish. Let's pray.